Well, go ahead, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark as we just continue to walk through the gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we are in chapter three, starting in verse seven uh, this morning. And um, Taylor and Faith, I I just want to say about them, not to them, because I know that they are, they're right there. You guys didn't leave. Um, But uh, they've done this for all three services so far. Um, But just love them to death. And multiplication is, is an extreme part of what we believe God has called us to do as Redemption Hill Church. It's why if you've been with us for any time, you saw several months ago, we sent out the Miller family to plant a church in Louisville. Uh, in January, we'll actually be sending out the Littles uh, to plant uh, in Clemens and Taylor and Faith today to plant on the south side of, of downtown. Um, because we believe that God has called us to, to put gospel-centered churches where people can be reached, known, discipled all over our city and to partner with existing gospel-centered churches in our city uh, for the sake of every man, woman, and child. Because we ask the question, not just how do we grow a church, uh, but when we began Redemption Hill Church, we asked the question, how do you disciple a city? Uh, and those two answers to those two questions are completely different. And so we knew that multiplication, collaboration were going to be massive parts of what we knew that God was calling us to do. That's why we pray for another gospel-centered church at the end of our service in our city every single week, uh, because we believe a win for any church in our city that is proclaiming the gospel truth and making disciples to make disciples is a win for us. Uh, we desire to see the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm, I'm thankful for Taylor and Faith and, and the time that you guys have been here and excited for what God has for you. Um, and all of that, all of that belief, all of those convictions come right out of Scripture because we believe that all of God's Word is living and active and beneficial and applies to our lives right now. And so I don't know what you're coming into this place thinking, believing, seeking, following uh, the issues that you have, the celebrations that you have, but what I do know is that as we read this text, The words will be living and active, and they will apply to you exactly where you are right now. Uh, And that's one of the beauties of the truth. It's that God, in his infinite wisdom, gives us his word, and he allows us to see who he is and what he came to do through his son Jesus and how that applies to us. Uh, So as we've been walking through the book of Mark, we've asked two predominant questions that Mark actually answers. Who is Jesus and what does he do? What has he done for us? And then we kind of see as we're walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, Mark used this phrase or this term immediately 42 times. So he's saying, here's who Jesus is, and here's what he has come to do, and here's how it immediately affects our everyday life, who we are and what we have and everything about us. And this morning, um, because it took us a little bit more time to get to this point, um, I'm going to attempt, all right? And it's just an attempt, don't hold me to it, to be a little quicker, Uh, this morning. Um, And I have three things that I want us to see in this text that Jesus points out for us as he reveals to us who he is and what he's come to do and how it begins to affect us. I want us to see three things that Jesus points out as he calls the disciples to himself. And so normally we don't go three things, all right? Uh, They definitely don't alliterate. Um, and, And so we're not starting all three with A's or anything like that. But we do just see right out of the text three things that Jesus teaches us as he calls the disciples unto himself. And these are three things that feel so upside down to us. Because what Jesus is saying is, if you want to know truly who you are, your true identity, to walk in the freedom because of who I am and what I've come to do that you can have in your life that applies to everything about you, 
then these three things are present. And they do not seem like things we would naturally pursue. They're probably the last things on your list in your search for life and freedom and liberty and happiness and satisfaction and peace. And all of us, as we've talked about, are on this great exploration for those things in our life to find the authentic self. And what Jesus says actually allows us to live in that authentic self in him are not things that we would typically pursue. So we're going we're gonna to see it, and I'm just going to jump right in and read for us this morning. So here is the text, Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with the disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. That's really interesting. And I don't know if even in the time maybe that you've read the gospel stories and you've seen all of these multitudes of people that are continuing to talk about gathering around Jesus, if you've picked up, and I have not to this point, on those little things, but they're so significant. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now we're going to continue, but I want to say something right there because we're not going to get to say a whole lot about demons and evil spirits and those types of things this morning. Though Mark talks about demons all throughout the gospel, and so we'll have other opportunities to do that. But what I do want to point out is for us to remember that as Mark is answering the question, Who is Jesus and what has he done? No one understands who Jesus is and what he has come to do other than the demons in the book of Mark all the way until Jesus has accomplished what he came to do in Mark chapter 15 by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. It's in him actually coming and serving and doing what he has come to do that eyes begin to be open to the reality of what we can have and experience in him. That's why we always have to understand the gospel truth that Jesus lived, died, rose, so that by his grace we can place our faith in him and have new life and salvation and joy and peace and understand what we were created to be and what we were created to have and know in him. But the demons already realize that, and so they try to name God. And and so keep that in mind, that they name him, and we'll see why in just a moment. There's this power that they're trying to take over him in the first century of naming something was, was believed to give some power. But then Jesus shows his authority and power over them by strictly ordering them not to say anything. And when Jesus speaks to them, they listen uh, for that reason and also for because it was not the time for him to be known as yet. Verse 13, and he went up onto the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named the apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, who he also named Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, whom he gave the name Boenerges, which is sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, who was also believed to be Nathaniel, Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. When he went home, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out and seized him, for they were saying, he is out of his 
mind. And I'll read verse 22 as well, even though we're going to go over these next week. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And the prince of demons has cast out demons. And so they're like, the family's going, Jesus is crazy. The, the religious leaders are going, he's being led by the enemy, the evil one. And then there's this whole crowd of people that are pushing up against Jesus to where he has to uh, kind of get off to himself up on a hill to reveal who he is and what he's come to do. And this is what we're going to see this morning. Let's pray with me as we continue. God, thank you so much. For the opportunity to read your word and to study your word. And and God, I just pray in this moment that you would just captivate us in your truth. God, I I pray that that you would just allow us to have new ears to hear and, and eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to feel the weight of your glory, the the weight of your truth. And God, I just I pray that it would impress upon us in, in a new and a fresh way. That we would, we would have these things revealed to us through your word and that they would immediately impact our everyday. And we would have hearts that are transformed, hearts that are changed. And so God, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, maybe they're seeking truth. I, I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself in an undeniable way to be the truth they are seeking. And God, for those of us that know and love you, would, would you allow us to walk in you in deeper ways? Would you, would you transform our hearts to really passionately seek after you, to passionately live for your glory, to understand that, that you are where our joy is wrapped up and not in anything else that you have created? God, help us to have a proper perspective on the rest of life as we go into this Thanksgiving season that we would have hearts that are thankful for the proper things and minds that, that desire to worship you because you alone are everything that we need. And so, God, we give this time to you, and I just pray that you would bless it. Pray that your spirit would just speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've seen walking through the book of Mark, Jesus... Uh, has come. He is proclaimed to be God. He is, he is speaking with authority like no other religious leader, no other leader of an ideology or a philosophy. Like when he speaks, he's not appealing to others or to things around him. He is appealing to himself. He's speaking with great authority, and then he's demonstrating everything that he is proclaiming to be true of himself in his actions. And so he's actually healing people. He's, he's saying, hey, I'm coming to set the blind free, to give them sight, Spiritually, but then he does so physically to represent the spiritual aspect of how he is saving the soul, how he's restoring community with God through his actions and what he has come to do. And so we've seen his message of of proclaiming the good news that I have come to restore what was lost in man's sin and rebellion, to restore community with God as we were created to have in the very beginning at creation so that we might walk in community with him, that we might live in community with him, we might understand how to have deep community centered around him together, we might understand how we are to live in the world around us, Essentially, what he's saying is, I've come to restore a true identity. Everything that you're looking for, everything that you're seeking, in all of the things of the world, and in all the different ways that we're in pursuit of the identity that is fulfilling and satisfying, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill. 
I've come to reveal it to you. Not, not that you have to do something, but I have come to do it for you. And by grace, you can rest in the identity that you were created to have. And he's demonstrating all these things. And then, of course, when this is being spoken and these things are being demonstrated, then everybody is going to respond. Like, there's one thing that is extremely true about Jesus as we walk through the Gospels and see the story of his life. It's that you cannot come into contact with him and remain the same. And and what we see and what we've seen through our time in the book of Mark is that there are different ways to respond to him. And, And the question that we have to face this morning is, who is Jesus and what side am I on? Who is Jesus? What has he done? What side am I on? We've seen how the religious leaders have responded to Jesus. He's teaching with authority. He's revealing himself in the healing that he is doing. And then you have these religious leaders, and you could just as easily say the irreligious people who are kind of keeping Jesus at arm's length. They're looking for ways to trap him. And this is the commonality that we might have in response to Jesus with religious leaders or irreligious who are looking for ways to trap Jesus. And that is that ultimately, we are trying to develop our own salvation, our own way of life, really. We're all in this pursuit. It's the lifelong pursuit of finding joy and happiness and meaning and purpose and identity and place. All of us are on that. All of us are on that path. We're all seeking that. We're all desiring that, longing for that. Everything that we do at its very foundation is in pursuit of that, gaining that and understanding that and living in that. And so when we do that in and of ourselves, in the things of the world, I I need to gain this, I need to live in this way, uh, I need to act in that way, I need to not do this and not have that, then what we're doing is trying to build our own kingdom and our own way, ultimately, of salvation, my own identity, my own meaning, my own purpose, and I'm trying to build this up this kingdom, so that my heart and mind that is pursuing ultimately what I can only have in God, without him, then I'm building up what I think I need. It builds up this pride in us. Ultimately, it's a self-righteousness. It's this idea that I am, I am going to find my own salvation. I'm going to build my own kingdom. I'm going to find my own meaning and purpose, and I'm going to find my own fulfillment and satisfaction. That's self-righteous. And it happens irreligiously and religiously. And so our pride wells up. And so when Jesus comes along and says, no, listen, it's much better than that. You don't have to go out and find yourself and work hard and try harder to do better and to accomplish and to achieve. Ultimately, all you're doing, if you're really realizing what's happening, is being enslaved to the things that you're trying to gain and pursue. You have to have them or you'll never become what you think you need to become. So you will always fear not having enough. You will always have anxiety about losing what you have. And just the the train of thought for that and the enslavement for that just continues to go on and on and on. It's not freeing at all. Then if you get everything that you long for, you realize it didn't actually perform the way that you wanted it to and thought it would, and you worked so hard for it to. But when Jesus comes in, who, by the way, is the only one who says in any religion or any philosophy or any ideology that you cannot do it, he just lays out the truth. But I have come to do it for you. I've come to live for you, to die to pay the penalty of your rebellion against God, to rise from the grave so that you can defeat sin and death, so that you can have new life 
By placing your faith in him and walking in community with him, he's the only one that says it's not about you doing something to find yourself and to build your kingdom and to establish life. He's the only one that says I do it for you. But when we're building up our own kingdom, that pride for us when Jesus comes and says, hey, it's not about what you do, but it's about what I've done for you. Then we'll want to have this tendency to kind of keep Jesus at arm's length. We'll do the same thing with our traditions. Well, this is the way that I've always thought, and this is the way I've always been taught. And, and Jesus comes along, or God's word comes along, and it begins to say things that, that we didn't think traditionally were okay. And so we think to ourselves, man, our, my first intention is this self-righteousness in me. And, and Jesus says this, and, and so I want to keep him at arm's length. And, and so I'm going to look for ways in his word maybe to trap him. Or we're influenced by our culture, and culture says this and that, and if I want to fit in and I want to really find myself, then I have to believe what the current culture is telling me that I have to believe. And even though it's shifting with the wind, it, it really causes me to have to shift with the wind too. I, I've got to kind of stay on par with what's happening in the culture. And so when Jesus shows up and he says, no, there is one truth for all time, for all people in every place. And it applies in every culture, in every way, in, in everything of life. Then we're going to want to say, but, but th my culture says this. And so we're going to want to keep Jesus at arm's length. We're going to start talking to him in different ways. We're going to start seeking his word in different ways. We're going to start trying to build a trap, just like the Pharisees do. We want to prove our point and how Jesus can't be who he really says that he is. So we do this with tradition. We do this with religion. We do this with our preferences. We do this with our culture. But this is one way that we respond to Jesus that we see with the religious leaders that we talked about last week. I hear what you're saying. I see what you're doing. And it's undeniable. But listen to me. I've got my own way. I'm doing my own thing. I've got all of these other influences. And so I'm keeping you at arm's length. And just like the Pharisees, we look for ways to trap Jesus to prove that we are right and he is wrong. The second way we can respond, and this is why I read verses 21 and 22, is like Jesus' family. I, I see what you're doing, Jesus, and I hear you, and, and, and listen, it, it just seems too far-fetched. Like, it seems too good to be true. So, so it can't be that you're really God, that you really came to save, that I can really have life in you. It just seems like for me to really place my faith in that, it's so upside down. It's so out of the norm. It's so unbelievable. It can't possibly be that easy, that good, that true. And so our tendency will be to say, mm, it just, it's too good to be true. I've got to reserve some of self. So when Jesus comes along and says, surrender yourself to me to find life and, and serve, to find actual, true, authentic power in who you actually are by living for his glory and finding joy and living for his glory in all things, then we want to go, it's, it's too good to be true. There's no way that this could be a reality. The third way is what we see in our text in verses 7 through 12, and that's that we can be a part of the crowd. And this is a tendency of the church that I see constantly, especially in our culture today. They're just part of the crowd. Another way that we could define them is that they're fans of Jesus. 
I believe everything that Jesus is saying. I believe his word is true and, and I believe I need Jesus and I place my faith in Jesus and I have salvation in Jesus and I've joined a church and I've been baptized. And, and, but here's the reality. There, there's a whole lot of lip service towards belief in Jesus, but there's not a whole lot of heart transformation and activity for Jesus. There, there's not a working out our salvation as an identity, like I have been made new and I love God and I want to be known by him and I want to reveal him and, and I want to experience him in every way, shape, form in life. And so what we have a lot of times in the church with people who would call themselves followers of Jesus is I believe, but I haven't been transformed. I, I worship on Sunday but it doesn't affect the rest of my life. There's very little commitment, ultimately because the crowd and fans are just looking to Jesus like they would look to anything else in the world that they believe is promising to make their life better. So I'm trying to build my kingdom. I'm trying to pursue my own way. Here comes Jesus coming along. I've heard this about him. I've heard that he does this. I've heard that he makes my life better. And so I'm going to add him as a part of my life. This is what the crowd or the fans do. I've heard about him and, and, and I believe that he can help me. And so I'm going to add him to my life as a part of who I am. We're going to see the, the problem with that, but these are the three natural ways that we respond to Jesus. When the truth of Jesus is proclaimed, here's who he is, here's what he's come to do, here's how he saves us by his grace, then we're going to have a tendency to go, whoa, arm's length, I'm going to find fault. We're going to have a tendency to go, it's too good to be true, I've got to continue to make my own way, or maybe Jesus can help me build my thing. And, and this is what's happening in the text. We see all of these multitudes of people in verse 7 and following come to Jesus. And here's what we need to think with this. Thousands of people. So, so this is not, and, and a lot of times, uh, if you've watched a movie about Jesus, or if you've kind of just imagined, or you've seen a picture book that you've gone through with kids, or, or whatever it might be, maybe you growing up in Sunday school uh, as a child, a lot of times when we think of Jesus kind of walking town to town or village to village and in the wildernesses, uh, we see him speaking. It's to a very few people that are kind of politely just kind of sitting on rocks and in the grass. And then he's walking over to people afterwards and touching them and healing them. And everybody acts like so, totally surprised that they didn't expect for him to heal them. And, you know, this is just a bonus. All I really want to do is hear you speak. And like that kind of thing, right? Like that's typically what we see. It's just this nice little stroll Jesus is on with his disciples and just kind of healing people along his way. But that's not actually the way that it took place. Everywhere that Jesus was going, as they were hearing about what he was doing, they were flooding to him. The words that are used here in the text are like a mob-like mentality, that it was dangerous. This is why Jesus tells the disciples, hey, go get a boat ready just in case we have to get away. Because they're pressing in, they're, they're crushing, they're trampling one another, trying to get to Jesus because they're not interested in the reality of who Jesus really is. They're just interested in the reality they believe Jesus can help them. They're, they're true fans. And, and it's not this fandom like Beatlemania or, or Beaver Fever or whatever that might be in our culture where there's this celebrityism and we want to be entertained. What they're doing is they're feeling this matter of life and death. Like everything about me is this pursuit for joy and meaning and purpose. And, and if I don't get healing, then who am I? If, if I don't make my life better, then what do I have? 
And so for them, it's a life or death situation. This Jesus can help me. And so they're pressing in on one another. They're pressing in on him to be able to touch him. So there are thousands of people that have come together. And the, the places that are mentioned here by Mark are actually north, south, east, and west of where Jesus is. The farthest ones away are about 100 miles. So you have people from 100 miles away hearing Jesus is here next to the Sea of Galilee, and they are flooding this area to get close to him and to touch him because of what they believe they can do to help them build their kingdom. Which all of that is temporal. And the other thing is that we have to understand in verses 7 through 12 is that the fans are the crowd. They're coming from all different types of places. And and there's some that are Gentile provinces and there's some that are uh, Jewish provinces. And so all these people that are typically enemies are coming together because of what they believe Jesus can do for them. And, And in reality, Jesus is the one who can actually allow us to have identity outside of who we are, where we're from, what we gain, what we do, what we accomplish. Uh, what we don't do, um, how we name ourselves, even the color of our skin and the backgrounds that we have, and all of those different kinds of things. As much as we desire in the world to be able to build unity together, the only way that we can actually have that unity is if our identity comes not from ourselves and the things that we accomplish and do, but outside of ourselves from one who has accomplished it for us and who gives us the identity that we were created to have in him and in him alone. So Jesus is the only one that can actually do this. And that's why in our world, sometimes, and we get this glimpse of this here, we'll be able to, as people who identify ourselves as things that we have um, from, from where we're from and what we've accomplished and all of those different ways that we build our own kingdoms, and, and we will have a common purpose and we'll come together for a temporal time and it will look like unity because we desire that unity and we come around a common purpose for a time. But it will always, just like it is here, when people come to Jesus for the wrong reason, it will always be a temporal thing. It will never be something that truly is transformed us into having unity because of who we are and created to be in God, all with innate value from him and him alone, with the identity to be lived out as we were created to live out together in community. Because even if we come around a commonality for a time, if it is temporal, then the next generation will not have that temporal commonality and sin and brokenness will take over. And the culture around us as much as we want to say we want unity and love and kindness, the way that we teach that you find everything that you're looking for in life is that you look inward at who you are and you build your own kingdom. And as long as we do that, we will always have enemies. We will always have disunity. And so we see this picture of what Jesus can do, but ultimately we have to find ourselves in him for this to become a reality. It's temporal here. But all of these multitudes are flocking to him, and they desire to be satisfied in what Jesus can do. And this is something that they feel is, again, life and death. And so when we read this, we have to have this picture of everyone pressing in on him. It's unsafe. Now, 
desiring the physical healing that the people are desiring to get around Jesus, that's not a bad thing. And we've talked about this, so I won't spend a ton of time here, but, but it's good for us to pray for healing and to pray for one another and to seek justice where injustice is in our broken world. All of those things are very good. We want to, as followers of Jesus who find our identity in him, just like Jesus does, we want to reveal the authenticity of who Jesus is in our activity to reveal the kingdom of God everywhere we are in everything that we do. Everything physical has a spiritual implication. And so if we're truly knowing who we are in Jesus, then that will come out in physical ways of of trying to bring healing where there is brokenness and justice where there is injustice, just like we see Jesus do. He's teaching the truth, but then he's demonstrated with his healing. So everything physical has a spiritual implication. God made us body and soul. And he made body and soul to be with him and to have community with him. But ultimately, the body, the physical, is temporal. It reveals or reflects something that is spiritual. And this is what Jesus continues to teach in his healings. That the soul is ultimately what is at the foundation. This is what he has come to transform and to change. He's come to change us from the inside out. Not that he would just change the physical world in hopes that it would transform our hearts into understanding who we are and where we belong and everything that we desire would be accomplished and we'd have peace and purpose and meaning. See, that's what we typically do in the world. We think to ourselves, if I can just gain this or build that or accomplish that, the physical, then it will make me on the inside soul level happy. And it doesn't work. That's not the way that we were created. This is one thing that's upside down when we begin to understand what we naturally desire is to build the physical and it will uplift the soul. But Jesus says, no, I uplift the soul and it reveals how you are to see everything physically. And one day all things will be made new and everything will be restored. But the soul is eternal. That is what lives and dwells with me. That is what I live in and dwell through in the life that you have in this world. And so Jesus wants to transform us from the inside out. And he's going to change our hearts so that we begin to see his creation in the way that he created us to see it so that we will be satisfied and we're able to reveal that satisfaction in everything that we do. So following Jesus compared to looking for ourselves in the world in the way that we respond to him is like living a life that's completely full of seeking what you long to be or in Jesus living a life of truth and following that truth so that you know who you are in him. And when we know who we are, we know what to do. We know how to view the world. We have a healthy understanding of the physical aspects of everything that we are health-wise and everything that we have. So we have to understand we're not just physical beings, we're also spiritual beings, and God cares and is concerned more with the soul, but everything that he does in the soul reveals itself in the physical. It's an implication of the reality of what he does for us, but it happens from the inside out, not the outside in. It's completely different than the world tries to say we have to pursue self. Seems so backwards, but it's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. 
And if we are a people who hear about Jesus, but we respond as the crowd or the Pharisees or his family, then we will find ourselves in this constant pursuit of seeking rather than following truth and knowing who we are. And we'll see this in our culture. We do every single day. Take the way we just take or view time, talents, and treasures. When we as a culture think about our time, Everything that we do to fill up our time, we do primarily with temporal things. We're not as concerned about the soul because we believe that the outside will transform and make happy the inside. But in reality, the inside has to be transformed in Christ for us to be able to enjoy life in the way that we were created to enjoy it. But when we think about our time, we'll fill it up with all the temporal entertainments, trips, all of the things. And And the thing that easily gets pushed to the side is the soul. Time with God, time with his people, time in his word, time in prayer. Our calendar will get filled up with other things. That's, a, that's some insight for us to see and to test ourselves. Where am I finding my identity? Am I just a fan of Jesus or am I a follower of Jesus? Look at our treasure. We'll spend all of our resources on things to gain materially or to feel better about ourselves so that physically we're getting what we desire in hopes that it will make us feel happy about who we are. Talents, we use all of our talents naturally for ourselves. What can I gain out of the abilities that I have rather than understanding who I am in Jesus is everything that I need. And so all the talent that I have is to serve and to reveal him. Much more joy and happiness comes out of that. So the point is we we value our bodies intensely and we hope somehow that that will satisfy our soul. But Jesus points out a completely upside down way. I've come to transform your heart and that will transform everything about you. The way that you see everything, the way that you do everything, the way that you possess, the way that you try to gain, like everything will be about revealing who you are rather than trying to gain an identity you do not have. And this is the difference of following Jesus and following yourself or any other religion or anything else in the world. I'm seeking something I do not have or in Jesus, I am living out who I am in him. The only way that we can authentically know self is to find ourselves in Jesus and be transformed from the inside out. This is what Jesus begins to reveal to us. And so in verses 13 and 19 through 19, we've seen the crowd, we've seen the fans, we've seen the Pharisees, we've seen the family. And this is where he points out these three things of how he begins to transform our hearts from the inside out and how we actually find our true selves in him alone. So look back in verse 13 through 19. After Jesus has experienced the mob of people, He retreats onto a hillside with those who follow him. We don't know how many people that is. It could be just the 12 that are mentioned, or it could be a whole host of people that have come that are following him. And he demonstrates again to us what he has come to do, that he has come to save as he is God, but also to do so by his work for us on our behalf. And if you remember when we talked about what rabbis typically would do in the first century, is that if you had gone through all of your schooling and you desired to be a disciple of a rabbi, that you would take your resume to a rabbi. 
and you would allow the rabbi to look at your resume. You would, he would ask a bunch of questions, and then he would let you follow him maybe if he was impressed over time. And then over time, he would decide whether or not he was going to allow you to be his disciple. And once he accepted you as a disciple based on your merit and what you were doing and how impressive you were to him, then he would let you follow and become like him, and he would teach you, and then you could become a rabbi after him and have your own disciples. This is the way that the world works. With everything that you might put your life in and seek life in, this is how it works. If you are impressive enough, then you will achieve. But if you are not impressive enough, then you will never accomplish. But Jesus comes, and we see right off the bat that he begins to say he called the people unto himself, not based on their merit, not based on their, even their desire, but he calls the people unto himself that, that don't deserve it. There's nothing about them when we see the list of 12 disciples and their names that would lead us to believe in any way, shape, or form. They have the resume to be a rabbi or a disciple of a rabbi. But he calls them unto himself. So he reminds us, even in his calling, that this is all completely about him, that he's the one that calls, that he's the one that saves, that it's his work and his grace that allows us to have salvation. What we have with Jesus is unlike anything else in the world. As I said, what we have outside of him in everything that we try to pursue life in is this two-way street. If I do this, then I'll accomplish this. If I live this way, then this will ha should happen. And, and then we have rights to be upset when they don't because we achieve something. We deserve something. But Jesus is truly this one-way love. None of us will ever do what is required for us to have his love given to us, his acceptance given to us in return. And Jesus comes and lives the life that we cannot and one, comes one way and does everything that is required and then by grace does not require us to live up to his standard because he lived up to his standard for us. And so we can have salvation in him. And, and he reveals how we have salvation in him by his work and his work alone and what he does right here. He gives them a new identity. He gives them a new name, a new purpose, a new heart. Look what he does. It says he calls the disciples, or in this case, the apostles, and everything that we see that Jesus does um, applies to disciples, those who would follow Jesus. Those he calls here are the apostles, and there are no more apostles. Those are ones who walked with Jesus. They were disciples who were actually with him in his life here on earth. But as disciples, this is exactly how Jesus functions in our salvation and in our life as he works through us. So here's what he does. He demonstrates this by not demanding from them, but he calls them and gives them a new identity, a new name. He takes them from being a seeker of truth to a follower of truth, which radically shifts the way that we live life and see all of life. And here's what he says in verses 13 and 14. He called those he desired, and he appoints the 12 as apostles. So let's look at those two words just for a moment together. It says that he called. That's actually two words that are pushed together, mushed together in the New Testament for, to, me, to say ekklesia. The first word is ek, and the, the second word is the verb or the root word in the verb kaleo. 
So ek means to exit. It means to, uh, to go out of. And so if you are, after this service, looking for the way out, you might look around for an exit sign. That would be the word ek. And then kaleo is to call. And that's the root word or the verb. And so he's saying to be called out. And so he's calling the disciples out of the world that they're living in, of finding life in the things that they do and they seek to accomplish. And he is giving them a new identity. He's calling them out to be set apart, to be different than the world, to be in the world, but not of the world, to have life in something that is outside of what we try to accomplish in the world, an identity that they can walk in truth in and not be seekers of the truth, an identity that they can reveal who they are rather than trying to gain who they are not. This is what he's calling them out to. So Jesus is calling the disciples out. But that's not all he does. The second word there, and this is so good, it says he appoints them. Or maybe your version says he designates them. And to appoint means this, to name something new. In the Greek, it's where we get our word nomenclature or to name something new. So Jesus is calling them out, the apostles, and he is giving them a new name. He's calling them out of the world and he's giving them a new identity, a a new heart, a new life, a new purpose. And in ancient times, a name meant a lot. Now, I would argue today it also means a lot, though we kind of overlook it in a lot of different ways, but to them, a name meant so much. And throughout your life, if you had done certain things, whether good or bad, you might have something added to your name. Uh, Many of them would have Hebrew names and Greek names. They'd have names that they go by with their family and then names that they would go by in public. And that's why in scripture, even, you get so many people that have multiple different names. Names were very special to them, and they would describe who they were. So your identity was wrapped up in a name. There was also responsibility, as I said, and power when we were reading the text in naming something. That's why the demons, every time they come in contact with Jesus, they would name him. They're trying to take authority over him. And that's why Jesus would immediately take authority over them and then not let them speak to show that he has power over them, even though they're trying to name him. And that it wasn't the right time for that authority that he has to be revealed. But naming something has a lot of power and responsibility, and what, is your, what your name is actually reveals a whole lot about your identity. Now, we feel this way today, too, right? I mean, like, we put a lot of weight on our names. This is why companies will spend millions and millions of dollars, many man hours, to name companies and products so that we'll buy them. This is why so many celebrities in our world, they understand the power of a name. And so, so many celebrities in our world today have changed their name. Does anybody know what John Wayne's original name was? Marion. That's a whole different cowboy, is it not? Like, so he changes his name to John, Martha Stewart, Sting, Olivia Wilde, Bruno Mars, Katy Perry, Natalie Portman, Hakeem Phoenix, Jamie Foxx, John Legend, Alicia Keys, and on and on I could go. Those are not their real names. And they knew that they needed to change their name if they wanted an identity that would sell them, that would give them what they desired. We understand the power of a name. 
And, and even my six-year-old understands the power of a name. Uh, I was driving with him a couple of days ago, Judah, um, and he was just sitting in the back of the car out of nowhere. He just goes, hey, Dad, I think I'm going to change my name when I grow up. Okay, I think Judah's pretty cool, but I'll play the game. Why would you want to change your name? And, and so he tells me, he's like, well, it seems like Judah's like a really good kid name. But when I'm a grown man, I want a different name. And I was like, okay, well, what kind of name would you want to have? What would you name yourself? I'm totally expecting like Superman, Batman, like something crazy that a six-year-old would say. And he just so calmly is just like, I don't know, like maybe Brandon. <laughs> and so in his little mind, he's thinking my adult dad's name is Brandon. I'm a little kid and my name is Judah. And he understands names mean something. And so if he's going to be a grown man, he wants a grown man name. Now, it was super cute, right? But it demonstrates that we understand the power of names. Now, when we name something, the difference is we're naming something in hopes of something. So if you've ever named a kid, you want to give your child like a power name or a beautiful name. And you're hoping that it'll like describe them when they grow up. And like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? Or you, we give names to things that describe. And that goes all the way back to the beginning because God created us. He made and then he gave us the ability to name what he created by describing it. So this is how we name things. We describe things. We name things with hope that it will have some sort of ability or power that we desire it to have. But God doesn't name like that. All the way back in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, he begins to name through his, uh, through his word things into existence. There was nothing, and then he created it all, and he called it water, and there was water. He called it land, and there was land. He called it mountains, and there were mountains. He called it sky, and there was sky, darkness, and there was darkness, light, and there was light. So his words and his actions are one in the same. What he proclaims, it is true. And, and so I'm getting a tiny bit ahead of myself and I'm, I'm wrapping all of this up. But here's the reality. If you are poor in spirit and broken and downtrodden and Jesus says he will lift you up to be at his right hand as his son or his daughter, then you are as good as his son or his daughter. If you are hurting and he says he will heal you, then you are as good as healed. If, he, if you are lost and he says he will save you, then you are as good as saved. What he names is a reality. He named everything that exists into existence. And here's what we need to know about this name, that, or this word that he uses, he appointed. It's the same exact word God uses in Genesis 1. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm calling you out of the world and I'm creating you new. There are 12 brand new men that walk off of this hill. And when we place our faith in Jesus because he calls us out from the world to give us life and salvation, I need you to know this. You are not just saved, you are transformed. To live out the identity that he has created you to have, to know your authentic self, to be in community with him, 
to walk the path that he has created you to walk. And this is, by the way, exactly what Jesus said he would do in Mark 1, 1, to restore what was lost in the beginning, to recreate, to make new, that in him you have a new heart with new desires. And he takes these 12 disciples that we don't have time to go through their names, but again, no reason for them to be called by God. But what God is pulling together is both rich and poor, doubters and traitors, angry, overconfident, underconfident, outspoken, quiet, and he brings them all together and gives them a new identity, the people of God. There's also significance in why he calls them 12, why he calls 12. The the 12 wasn't a significant number in the Old Testament other than that it was the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was the people of God that were supposed to be in the Old Testament set apart to reveal who God is to one another and to the world around them. And so when Jesus calls out the 12, although the 12 tribes had dissipated at this point, everybody that is there would be going, wait a minute, Jesus is not just creating something new in us. He is creating something new of his people. There's a church that's beginning here. There's a people of God that are called out as individuals, but called together as the people of God. And these 12 men that were made new, that are now a part of this new people that God is putting together, did not deserve it, but God would use them through his power to go on and to change the world. And we are a part of the church that began on that hill. So really quickly, let me just list out for you, just rapid fire, the three things we cannot find ourselves. We cannot be our true, authentic selves without these three things that Jesus points out here. The first one is you cannot be your true, authentic self outside of being with Jesus. This is why he says he calls them out and he makes them new. It's to be with him to be close to him, to be in community with him, that he would be our rabbi, we would be his apprentice, that that we would walk with him, that we would desire to know what he knows, to believe what he believes, to seek out everything that he is, that we would be a disciple, and discipleship starts with relationship, That, that we would understand who we are before we do anything. And we need to understand that when Jesus calls us to be with him, it's a calling for all of life. It's not just for a few hours on a Sunday morning. It's not just when it's convenient. It's not just when we feel like being a fan of what Jesus might be able to do. It's a life that's completely surrendered to him, that seeks him in everything, because understands that as soon as I fall away from him, I'm beginning to try to build myself in something he created that's only supposed to reveal his glory. And so now I'm getting lost as I'm pursuing and I'm seeking and I'm trying and I'm gaining and I'm accomplishing and I'm moving further and further and further away from everything that I'm trying to seek in it. But when I'm in Jesus and I'm looking to him, then everything else begins to fall into place. I know who I am and therefore I know what to do. And I don't need, like whether I'm in, I have love or I'm being betrayed, whether I have health or I am in unhealth, then, then who I am is not shaken. Here's something that you need to know. Whatever names you in life, 
you will be controlled by. Whatever names you in life, read Luke chapter 16. You see the story of Lazarus and the, and the rich man. Lazarus is poor. He's the only one that's named. Both of them die. Lazarus goes to heaven. The, the rich man goes to hell. You never know his name. Commentators for years and years, decades, hundreds of years have tried to figure out why is Lazarus named and he has a proper name and the poor man or the rich man does not, where in all these other parables, either both are named or neither are named. And here's the reality that we have to pull from that. When you base your life and you allow the world to name you, it's all temporal and physical and it will not transform your soul. And when you are gone, it is all gone and who you are is gone and there's nothing left. But when your identity is in Jesus, no matter what you have on earth, your soul will be with him for all of eternity. And you have a name that is unending because it is given to you by Jesus himself. See, there is power in a name and the most powerful name is Jesus. And when he names you, then you want to be with him and you will not know yourself unless you know who you are in him. Your identity, your true identity begins with him. Number two, I'll go much quicker on these last two. Not only that, secondly, as I said, he calls us to do so together. He calls the 12 to be the new church. There's something about us we never want to believe because we think that only we can know ourselves the best. But there's something about us that we cannot know unless we're in community. It, with my job, I, I listen to my voice a lot recorded. And, and just let me tell you, when I'm up here talking, I feel like my voice is like powerful. And it's just like, it's coming over you like a wind of God's glory. Like, it's just like, you know, it's just incredible. And all of you just want to hear it. Then when I listen back... I'm like, oh my, like, what is this whiny, nasally, like, was I sick that day? Like, it, like I just never want to do it again, right? And it's because I hear myself differently than you hear me. And listen to me, it's just like that with life. There are things about you that you have blind spots you will never know the, the true you and who you truly are unless you are in deep community and you are in community with people who love Jesus and find their identity in him. Therefore, they can lead you away from things that are stealing the joy that you can have in Jesus and pointing you to out of your blind spots who you are in him. You will not know the true you unless you know people and are in deep community with people who love Jesus and therefore love you and want Want you to grow in him as you want them to grow in him. God puts us together as a people and you will not know the true you unless you are in him and your identity is found in him. You will never know the true you unless you are in deep gospel-centered community with people that can love you and reveal the blind spots to you. And finally, you can never know your true identity unless you are on mission with God. See, this is what he says. He saves us to be with him and then to preach and to bring healing. 
And this is what Jesus is pointing out. As I transform you, then your identity will be mine. You will be in deep gospel-centered community, and then you'll be mobilized to go and reveal the kingdom of God in the world around you. And it's not preaching like I'm doing right now, but it's you being intentional with people you know where you live and work and play and the daily rhythms of your life that as they're getting to know you, they're getting to know your identity, which is Jesus. And many people will come to know him if we proclaim the reality of who we are in him. If we're not just religious or irreligious pushing him away, if we're not believing it's too good to be true, but it's transforming everything about who we are, and we're not just thinking to ourselves, you know what, I'm a fan, but I'm actually transformed, then as people get to know us, they will get to know him. And we will be a people who reveal him in everything that we do. You will not be able to know the true you unless you serve out of the identity that needs nothing because in Jesus, you have everything. And the more you are on his mission, the deeper that truth will root in your heart and mind and the more you'll walk in freedom.